On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll discuss the amazing story of the box. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thank you for listening. The box we're talking about is not the one made of corrugated cardboard that carries so many orders we get delivered to our homes these days, but a much bigger box. On April 26, 1956, Malcolm McLean changed the world. At least, he changed the shipping industry. He did it with a box. It was a big, specialized box, to be sure, but basically it was a box. Trade has always depended on transporting goods from one place to another. At various times in history, traders have used camels, wagons, barges, ships, railroads, trucks, airplanes, and tanker ships. Each mode of transportation has advantages, and each has potential difficulties. For instance, weather sinks ships, shuts down highways and airports, and stymies railroads. Camels can travel across deserts, but can also get sick. Thieves, whether workers within a company or bandits from without, steal goods, which means lower profits. Rough roadways can ruin wagons. Long distances could prevent trade from taking place at all between two otherwise eligible parties. What took place for many years is that workers in a factory made the goods and loaded them by hand onto wagons, rail cars, or trucks. A driver would take the goods to a dockyard, which was a flurry of activity. Longshoremen on the dock would carry the goods onto a ship on their backs or with small carts and store them among different kinds of goods in the hold of the ship, a very inefficient process. It was hard work, and longshoremen suffered many injuries. When the ship landed at the receiving port, the process was repeated in reverse. Middlemen stored the goods in warehouses and eventually distributed them to retail stores. Transportation, labor, and storage costs added significantly to the retail price that consumers paid. Manufacturing and warehouse facilities were often located as near to the ports as possible to save on costs and so businessmen could transport their merchandise more quickly. In the first half of the 1900s, the Interstate Commerce Commission oversaw and heavily regulated commercial transportation in the United States. The ICC's original interest was the railroads, but it later applied strict rules to the trucking industry as well. Longshoremen's unions controlled who worked at the docks. Corruption was common, and strikes were crippling. A few companies experimented with shipping containers that they could use on trucks, trains, and ships, but their efforts were inefficient, and the containers they developed were not standardized. Until the mid-1950s, trucks and ships really had nothing in common. Malcolm McLean was born in 1913 in rural North Carolina. He demonstrated a remarkable entrepreneurial interest early in his life. McLean got his start in the trucking business in 1934 with a used truck transporting gasoline to service stations. 
he began acquiring trucks and eventually built one of the largest trucking companies in the U.S. You might have noticed a McLean trucking semi rolling down the interstate. McLean noticed the inefficiencies of the shipping industry and decided to find a solution. He also noticed the increase in vehicle traffic that followed World War II and the inadequacy of the country's road system to handle it. One of his early attempts involved putting tractor-trailer bodies filled with goods onto unused oil tankers and sending them between ports in the United States instead of along overcrowded highways. This approach ran into regulatory issues and the opposition of existing industries and proved to be an inefficient use of space. The wheels and axles on the trucks took up a great deal of wasted space. Through a series of business deals, McLean acquired a small shipping business and created the Sealand Company. You might have seen Sealand trucks on the interstate as well. McLean obtained a used oil tanker that he named the Ideal X. McLean acquired the services of engineer Keith Tantlinger to build a steel container that workers could transfer between ships, railroad cars, and trucks. Rather than storing the containers in a hold on the ship, workers stacked the containers on the deck and secured them in place. Engineers developed a crane that could lift the containers on board ship and secure them without any direct human contact. On April 26, 1956, at the port of Newark, New Jersey, McLean and about 100 others watched a crane load one container onto the Ideal X every seven minutes. The ship took less than eight hours to load and departed the same day for Houston, Texas, with its cargo of 58 containers. McLean and his associates flew to Houston and saw the ship arrive six days later. What is more, the shipping cost per unit was considerably lower than with previous methods. McLean's company started receiving orders before the ship even docked in Houston. The revolution had come. The invention of the sea container was just one of many factors that led to the revolution in shipping. The increased use of computers, the building of thousands of miles of interstate highways, the deregulation of trucking, repeated world oil crises, as well as other factors, have contributed to this new industry. One significant factor in the increased use of sea containers has been the growth of communist China as a producing and consuming nation. As a communist country, for years China rejected capitalism and pursued a socialist economy that failed miserably. In 1972, President Richard Nixon opened the door to increased contact between China and the West. In 1979, the United States and China established diplomatic relations and began to trade with each other. That year, the two countries did about $4 billion worth of business in goods and services. Mao Zedong, China's longtime hardline leader, died in 1976. His eventual successor, Deng Xiaoping, began moving the Chinese economy toward what he called capitalism with a Chinese flavor. Deng, in effect, made a bargain with the Chinese people. He said, the government will increase your standard of living. In return, you will do what the government tells you to do. The state still owned many businesses, but the government allowed some individual ownership of companies, 
although they were still under close government oversight. Rather than continuing to reject the hated capitalist West, Chinese companies began doing business with Western companies. China built thousands of factories, recruited millions of its citizens to work in relatively low-paying jobs in these factories, and began turning out consumer goods, computer parts, and heavy industrial machinery. So how would all those goods produced in China reach world markets cheaply and quickly? The sea container. Sea containers enabled China to become supplier to the world. China had the workers who could make the goods relatively inexpensively, and a way to deliver the goods to world markets relatively inexpensively. Now, containers can deliver raw materials from almost anywhere in the world to a Chinese factory. Workers produce and then package the finished goods into standard containers on standard pallets, which they load into sea containers. The containers are transported to ports, where cranes load them onto container ships. From there, they cover the world. It takes about three weeks for a container ship to go from Hong Kong through the Panama Canal to a dock in Germany. Going to the west coast of the United States is a much shorter trip. In the receiving port, another crane lifts the sea containers off the ship and onto rail cars and trucks. These deliver the containers to distribution centers where the pallets of goods are touched by human hands, perhaps for the first time since the goods were manufactured and loaded into the sea container. From the distribution center, trucks carry the products to individual stores, where workers place them on the shelves for consumers to buy. Meanwhile, back at the port, the crane picks up other sea containers from the dock and loads them onto the ship. Over time, manufacturers agreed to use standard sizes for sea containers. The most typical container is a steel box measuring 8 feet wide, 8 feet tall, and 20 feet long with two doors on one end. The floor is usually plywood. Shippers refer to the capacity they fill in terms of TEUs, 20-foot equivalent units, and FEUs, 40-foot equivalent units, which is simply two 20-foot units. Containers are numbered, and shippers can keep up with their whereabouts by means of computer tracking systems. Malcolm McLean's first transport carried 58 containers. The largest modern container ships can carry over 20,000 each, many times with a crew of about 20. The economic impact of sea containers has been enormous. About 90% of global trade is seaborne, and the vast majority of that is accomplished with sea containers. The U.S. and China did $4 billion in trade in 1979. Today, China and the U.S. do over $700 billion in trade each year, and this is only a fraction of world sea trade. To complete the circle, almost all sea containers are now made in China. Lower shipping costs can affect where factories are located. Plants do not have to be near ports for manufacturing to be cost-effective when shipping costs are dramatically lower. Companies can even move their facilities to countries where labor costs are cheaper. Another economic consequence of sea containers is that fewer dock workers are involved. Modern ports can move 70 containers per hour by crane without their being touched by workers. Numerous side industries developed because of sea containers.
One is the development of new types of cranes to move the containers. Another is the use of retired sea containers in various ways. They are put to use for businesses, as homes, and in Odessa, Ukraine, as an outdoor shopping mall, more like a marketplace, with 16,000 vendors. The widespread use of sea containers has created new terms, such as containerization and intermodal freight transport, and it has hastened what is called the globalization of the world's economic activity, as the people of many nations have come to depend on what international shipping can bring them. Companies now can participate in international markets, and consumers all over the world have greater access to a wide diversity of products, much wider than they did in the early 1950s. Malcolm McLean didn't invent the original sea container. What he did was develop a new way of hauling freight. What he accomplished is an example of innovation, seeing what hadn't been done before, but building on what had been done before. That's a lesson that we all can learn from. Come to think of it, with all of these significant changes that have taken place in how the people of the world live because of trade involving sea containers, maybe Malcolm McLean really did change the world. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thank you for exploring the history of the sea container with me today. This has been Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.